I'm telling you, as we look at the book of Acts, we see a picture of what God still desires to do. His church, He very much desires to still be alive. And He's still at work in His church. Build your kingdom here. Let the darkness fear. Show your mighty hand. Heal our streets and land. Set your Well, good morning, church. If you got your Bibles, get them open to the book of Acts, chapter 2. I'm Barrett, one of the pastors here, and um, I am so thankful that you're here with us today. Um, just pray that you would know that God loves you, and we love you. We're a big family of faith here in the downtown area, and we're just so grateful that you're with us. We are in the midst of a journey studying the book of Acts in a series that I'm calling Church Alive. And today, uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2, and I really encourage you to get something to write with because we have a lot to do today. Um, we are studying through the book of Acts, and what we said last week is that the reason that this is important for us is that our church really began in Acts. Their story is our story, and our church it's important for us to understand is a part of living history. When did our church begin? In the book of Acts. We find a local expression of what's happening in the book of Acts here in Memphis today, but our history is rooted in this history. And we said last week, we're not just looking as we look at the book of Acts of what God used to do, but we're looking at what God still wants to do. We are studying this not as scholars, but as ones who are surrendered to Jesus today, just as the disciples were then, and we are desiring to, to realize what Jesus has promised to us, which is this, that his presence and his ministry continue among his church today. Luke opens the book, as we talked about last week, wanting us to know that the book of Acts is a continuation of his gospel. We don't need to think that the work of Jesus stopped at the end of the gospel of Luke. He says, no, he continues to work. And I want to tell you, O Theophilus, the recipient of this letter, how, how Jesus continues to work in those who believe in the midst of his church. And friends, that is the same even today. And what we've been talking about is desiring to really understand as we study the book of Acts, what are the key ingredients of a church that is alive? Some of us know a good car when we drive it, right? Y'all ever driven a really good car? And you're like, some of you like the purr of a certain engine. I can't even do it. Some of you like the way the, the steering wheel feels or how quick it can accelerate. You know, typically when you feel a good car, when you drive it. But the question is, do you know what makes that car a good car? Some of you might. I know I have no idea. I know when I get in and what it feels like, what, it, what a good car is, but I have no idea. I, have, I don't 
ever intend to get up under a car. Anybody with me? Never ever do I intend to do that. I think that's a bad idea. But I'm grateful for people who know how to and are willing to. And I pay them lots of money because of that. <laughs> but um, what I'm trying to say is it is important to understand what makes a good car a good car. The same thing as a church. Many of us will come into a church, and you might have come into this one and go, this church feels alive. I've, I feel like something's different here. There's life here. We hear that a lot, and we desire it. We're so grateful for that, desire that to continue. But the question is, do you know what makes this church alive, and what will continue to make this church alive? Do we, do we have the willingness to get underneath and see, as we look at the book of Acts, what God has designed for, for his church to as qualities for us to thrive in, characteristics for us to live in. That's what we're looking at. And last week, just to remind you um, of Acts chapter 1, and then we're going to read Acts 2 and study it together, but just to remind you of the historical overview, and everybody should have those little pamphlets. You, we began to give them out this week, and if you didn't get one, you can get one at the hospitality desk, where it has the, the major events in the book of Acts paired up with a historical timeline and the chapters where they're presented. But if you remember in Acts 1 what we looked at, if you weren't here last week, or just as a reminder, Jesus has been resurrected from the grave. And for 40 days, the people who saw him die upon the cross, who, who, who were part of putting him into the tomb, saw the tomb sealed for three days, had the opportunity to, to be with Jesus. And he confirmed his identity, his, the fact that he's a Messiah as he spent time with them and discipled them. And great joy and wonder came over the disciples and at the end of the 40 days, we read in Acts chapter 1, we saw last week that Jesus commissioned them. And we talked about last week the importance of having a gospel identity, being centered on Jesus, understanding that we're meant to live by the empowerment of his spirit, and understanding that we are purposed to live on gospel mission. That was all last week. But he commissions his disciples to, to maintain and to live in and to thrive in a gospel identity. And then he ascends into heaven with great glory. And I talked about last week with kind of a funny way how you see a balloon float up and how strange that would be to see Jesus. And, but I want to tell you, this, it's, it's not to be f silly. That is Jesus showing us his incredible glory. Glory is the only Son begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. That is a moment of worship. And he ascends to the Father and after that, at the end of Acts chapter 1, as they're huddled together waiting on the promise of, the, of, of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, they realize they, they need to be obedient in the task of ensuring a full representation of the tribes of Israel by having 12 disciples. Judas had killed himself after what he did in betraying Jesus, and they chose a disciple to fill out the appointed number that God had chosen for the, the founders and the leaders of the early church. And here, as we close chapter 1, the disciples are huddled in Jerusalem in prayer. Okay? Acts chapter 2. You got it? Everybody there? If you don't have it, take your Nabal's Bible and say, hey, can I look with you? It's also on the screen, but I want you to see our confidence is not in what I preach, but in what God says. I read from the ESV. When the day of Pentecost arrived... They were all together in one place. And suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. 
and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every tribe under heaven, every nation under heaven, excuse me, verse 6. And at the sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Persia and Pamphylia and Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they're just all filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God has raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, 
for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Bring therefore a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you, seeing that you're seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ this Jesus, whom you have crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is God's word. So we're going to stop today. So we're going to focus today, okay? Title of today's sermon, everybody got something to write with? Or type it in your phone. Get your fingers ready because we're about to do a drive-by. Here we go. <laughs> Title of today's sermon is True Conversion. True Conversion. We're going to be talking about what happens when God pours out his spirit, and we're going to be talking about the nature of true conversion as we look at one of the most essential ingredients of a church that is alive. 
We're at the time of Pentecost, which is at a time appointed after Passover. Passover happens around mid-April. Pentecost typically happened at the beginning of June. And believe it or not, I did not plan this, but today in the church calendar is the official Pentecost Sunday for Christians worldwide. So praise God, I'm actually following the church calendar I never follow. Um, We do Christmas and Easter, but some of the other ones we miss. Um, But here we are on Pentecost Sunday, this time of the year, every year. The Jews would gather in Jerusalem, probably the biggest festival. The travel was easier. The weather was better. Everyone gathered. Jerusalem was swarming. They got together to celebrate the feast of the first fruits. They're bringing the first pieces of their bread out of the oven and out of the fields, and they're offering, offering it to God. They're celebrating the giving of the law from Sinai to Moses, and what do you know God's going to use this day to bring the first fruits of the Holy Spirit to the church He's going to bring the church alive in the first way here, and he is going to be giving something much better than the law. He's giving his spirit. What a cool moment. Well, they're all gathered together, and it's 9 o'clock in the morning, it says here. That's what it means at the start of uh, chapter 2. It's 9 o'clock in the morning, and they're all together, and they're, they're, they're praying, and they're waiting. They're believing Jesus for what he had promised both in his ministry and also right before his ascension. And they begin to experience audible and visible manifestations. They hear a sound like a rushing wind, and they see a light above each other's heads that looks like tongues of fire. Believers begin to speak in languages that they have not learned, but others can understand. All of this begins to happen as they are gathered together. Luke relates the reaction of the diaspora Jews who have come into Jerusalem for the festival because they begin to understand what they're saying as they're giving praise to Jesus in their own native language. These are known languages. And he describes their bewilderment Due to the fact that, like verse 7 and 11, the Galilean Jews are speaking in the 15 or so languages spoken. He names all the regions that they're coming from. Languages are listed there in these geographical regions. And they're all bewildered. They're all, how do we explain this? Some have gone, this must be some uh, alcohol or something. I've never seen anything like this. Maybe we're hallucinating. No, this is the moment when God is pouring out His promised Holy Spirit among those who believe. And this moment changes everything. I want to talk to you about what happens when God pours out His Spirit, and I've got to go quick. But Peter, oh man, Peter, Peter, I'm going to talk about this in a second, This is Peter, okay? Peter who denied Jesus just a little bit ago. Who's hiding, going, I don't even know if I know this man. Trying to get away. Overcome in his guilt and his fear. As all of this begins to happen and God pours out his spirit and people are going, what is going on? We can't explain this. Peter, Peter? Is this you, Peter? 
stands up in the midst of the thousands of people with boldness and courage, and he opens his mouth not by his own strength and not by his own words, but clearly as a demonstration of the Spirit of God. And he says, oh, look at it. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. He's standing on the steps. Michelle and I just went there in April. We got to stand on the steps. I can picture it right now. He's standing on the steps, and the crowds are all around, and he's shouting in the top of his lungs because they didn't have this cool little earpiece look like Garth Brooks and all. And he says, if you can hear me, let me tell you something. What you have seen here is not related to alcohol. This is early in the morning. What is happening here is related to God. God has poured out His promised Spirit on His people. And let me tell you what this means. I'm going to stop talking like that because I will not be able to finish the sermon. <laughs> but what I want to do is help you get a picture of what's happening. Let me tell you what it means as we unpack Peter's sermon. Number one, it means this. When God pours out His Spirit, it means this. Number one, that He fulfills His promise. It means that God has fulfilled His promise. Peter opens his mouth and explains the manifestation as a fulfillment of prophecies in the Scriptures. Particularly, write it down, Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32, which explains the phenomenon of speaking in unlearned languages. In verse 16, Peter stands and says, the Spirit has arrived. Joel 2, 28 to 32, you Jewish people, you know the prophecy. Verse 16, Peter says, what's happening here is the fulfillment of this. Verse 17, he says, Joel said that God will pour out his Spirit on all flesh in the last days. Verse 17 and 18, he says the result of that will be prophetic speech. Verse 19 and 20, if you look at it. So 17, y'all following with with me? Looking at your Bibles? Your sons and daughters will prophesy. This is is what's happening. Joel said this would happen. Verse 19 and 20. I'm going to show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. In other words, he says the, the result of what Joel told us is that when God poured out his spirit, there would be signs and wonders. That's what you're seeing here. And Joel told us, verse 21, that on this day, that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It's also fulfillment of the prophecy that the angel Gabriel gave to Mary in Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 33, when he announced his birth, he would come filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus himself in Luke chapter 24, verses 46 to 49, said that there would be an expectation of the power that comes from high when he was resurrected. In Acts chapter 1, which we looked at last week, we learned that the promise of the Spirit's power is confirmed again before His ascension and His exaltation. Over and over, the prophecy of the, of the Messiah, like Luke chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, says that the Messiah would come and He'd be endowed with power for cleansing and for restoration. 
The promise of Jesus was that the Spirit would come upon the twelve in Jerusalem and extend to all people an event that would mark the continual reign of Jesus in the lives of all who believe. So, when the Spirit comes, God's saying, I am a promise keeper. I told you the day was coming, and now it's here. What happens when God pours out a spirit? Number one, he fulfills his promise. Number two, it confirms Jesus as the Messiah. It confirms Jesus as the Messiah. Verses 22 to 32, Peter stands up and begins to say, Oh, men of Israel, not only is this a confirmation of what God has promised, but this is a a confirmation, a fulfillment of what God promised, but a confirmation that Jesus really is the Messiah. Peter calls in verse 22 on Israel to listen to his explanation. And what he's saying is that the, the, what they're witnessing in the Spirit, which has been poor, it, this is the Spirit of, of the one who they know who's been crucified, but now risen and exalted, and he has been made Lord. In verse 22, he says that Joel's prophecy was fulfilled in Jesus' ministry. Verse 23, he asserts that Jesus' crucifixion, it says in verse 23, he was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. In other words, this was part of God's plan. And verse 24, it says that this Jesus is the one who God raised him up, loosening the pangs of his death. It is not possible for Jesus to be held by it, for he is God, the Son of God himself. And verses 25 to 32, Peter says, you know what David promised. David promised that there was one coming in his lineage who would be his heir, the ultimate king of kings, and we would know that he's David's heir by his resurrection. And then he points in verse 25, he's quoting here, guys, like quoted here in a second ago from Joel 2. Now he's quoting from Psalm chapter 16 verses 8 through 11. And what he's saying is that this psalm David wrote, he knows that the one who's coming after him is going to be one that's going to be resurrected because the psalm says, the Lord's on my right hand and makes me rejoice. He'll save me from death. He'll give me life and salvation. What he's saying is in verse like in verse 27, he's quoting it. He's not going to abandon this one to Hades. He's not going to let him see corruption. He's going to be a resurrected king of kings. And what Peter says is he stands up and he goes, Yo, you guys, rem you, the tomb is right there. That's not David. He wasn't talking about himself. He's obviously talking about one who'd come after him. And I want to tell you today that the prophecy of David has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the heir to his throne that was prophesied. And you can know, my brothers and sisters, that today you don't have to wonder if Jesus is truly the Messiah. By his resurrection from the dead and the spirit that has been poured out, he is now confirmed the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And in verse 33 to 35, Peter goes on and describes how Jesus is the exalted Lord <coughs> who reigns and pours out his spirit. He references Psalm chapter 110, verse 1. You can write that down as well. You need to look at this. The Bible confirms the Bible. 
Peter is using the Bible to, to, to make an argument that we can trust that Jesus really is who he says he is. And what he says is <coughs> that Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. This means that Jesus, who is crucified, is this one. David didn't go to heaven to sit at the right hand of God. No, Jesus did. And now he reigns. He is the Messiah. He's the Davidic Lord. And he is exalted at God's right hand. Praise God. Peter opens up his mouth and declares the Holy Spirit being poured out is a fulfillment of God's promise. And secondly, a confirmation that Jesus is the Messiah because he was not abandoned to Hades. And he is exalted. We saw him go to the heavens. David never did that. Verse 36, he says, Let it be known, therefore, for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus who you crucified. What else happens when God pours out his spirit? Third, we see salvation, that God saves all who believe in Jesus. He fulfills his promise. He confirms Jesus as Messiah. But third, he saves. The, the day of the messianic reign of Jesus has been open. Salvation is possible for all who believe. Verse 21, we read, And it shall come to pass, Joel prophesies, that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Oh, when, Joel? When will this happen? We're so ready for the day that anyone and everyone, no matter where they're from, can call upon the name of the Lord. When? Joel says there come a day when the Spirit is poured out. And as the Spirit is poured out at this day in Acts 2, and even today the Spirit is poured out, we know that we are living in the day that anyone and everyone can call upon the name of Jesus and be saved. Praise God. The Holy Spirit is given to extend salvation through Jesus. The Holy Spirit's coming is the initial proclamation of that the good news of Jesus is in worldwide effect. The list of nations. Don't miss it. God doesn't just care. We talked about last week for, for your kind or our local church. He cares for all people. Why does God wait for the day that a representation of the nations are coming to Jerusalem for this moment, and he's giving the opportunity for them all to hear it in their own language. Why? Lest you think that this is for Jews or for Israel only. No, this is for all people and all nations. We're in the age of the spirit of salvation. We no longer wait for the spirit, although we can be filled in greater ways by the spirit, but the spirit of God is bestowed on anyone in the moment that they acknowledge Jesus as Savior and Lord. It's the promise of God. And the connection here is between the coming of the spirit and the person of Jesus. This is happening. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, his exaltation are truly an offer of salvation for all who believe. 
and those who call on Jesus' name in acknowledgement of who he is and what he's done being sufficient to save will be saved from their sins and condemnation on the day of judgment. Praise God. What else happens when the Spirit pours out? We've got fulfillment of promise. We've got a confirmation of Jesus as Messiah. We've got salvation to all who believe in Jesus. And last here, we've got satisfaction and transformation in God's people. <clears throat> the criteria for assessing the powerful presence of the Holy Spirit is the observable transformation in the lives of the followers of Jesus. We look here at verses 33 and 34. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, speaking to Jesus, He has poured out on out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. What He's saying is, What is happening right now among the lives of the people who believe in Jesus that you're going, what is happening with him, is the very manifestation of God with us. He's saying what God's Spirit is doing, he is satisfying and bringing joy. The worship that you're seeing in the tongues that you don't understand but others do is all about the incredible joy that we have found in salvation. Truly, times of refreshing have come. And it's also an incredible mark of the transformation that Jesus brings to all who call upon him. Because we don't stay the same when we receive the Spirit. We become new. And our lives are marked by a transformative distinctive presence of God. These strange things are the presence of God. And His presence continues to live with all who call upon His name. And His presence is transforming. And His presence is available to all flesh, to all people, regardless of gender, regardless to age, regardless of class, regardless to educational background, regardless of money in the bank. His Spirit is available through those who call out from their hearts in desperate need and desire for Him. And like I said a second ago, Peter is a prime example of this. Peter, who denied Jesus just a few weeks earlier, has the courage to stand up in the midst of people who have literally killed Jesus and others for proclaiming such a thing. He has the courage to stand up and shout with all that he has to explain the significance of Jesus as crucified and risen Messiah and Lord to this crowd. Demonstration numero uno. Welcome to the stage. Peter, the one hiding in the bushes, saying he didn't know Jesus. Going back to fishermen because he's covered in shame and guilt and fear. Oh, what happened to this Peter? Something other than Peter worked up courage within himself. I'll tell you that much. Peter has experienced a radical transformation because of the presence of God. Case number one. And he can do the same for anyone who calls upon his name. Amen? What happens when God pours out a spirit? Look at your neighbor and tell him the four things. All right? Do it real quick. What happens when God pours out a spirit? 
All right. Y'all got it? Now, let's talk about it together. What happens when God pours out his spirit? What do we see then? What do we see now? We see what? Fulfills his promise. He confirms Jesus as the true Messiah. He saves all who believe in Jesus, and he satisfies and transforms his people. Now, this is moving somewhere, and the final part of our unpacking of Acts chapter 2 is critical because I believe it has the opportunity to take what we've just learned from Peter and his sermon and wrestle with it as it relates to our own lives and our church and our future. Because we need to understand the nature of true conversion. That's what I titled the message. After Peter finishes his sermon, can you imagine what's happening in the people? You just were part of a crowd, imagine, saying, crucify him! Give us Barabbas! You were there watching the spectacle, perhaps, of this one being put to death, this crazy guy who says he's the king of kings, who says he's God himself. And you're there participating in this. And all of a sudden, you see him killed, and he's proven dead, and he's put in the grave. And then you, you, you or maybe you hear about it, and you're, you're coming to Pentecost, and on this day, as you're out, somebody stands up because these crazy things are happening that are only of God, and the guy stands up and he says, hey, you know what happened? The Jesus who you killed is really God. And God has proven it by his resurrection from the dead, and we saw him ascend into heaven. He's been exalted at the right hand of God, and now he's the true King of kings and Lord of lords over your life, and you will face him in your judgment. Oh, crap! Boy, did I get that wrong. And that's, that's the message version of what this verse says. <laughs> right here in verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? What do I do with this? Okay, God's poured out His Spirit. I see it. It's a filled His promise. Confirmed Jesus as Messiah. He's saving all who believe. And what am I going to do? What are we supposed to do, Peter? Peter turns around and he says, verse 38, he just switched from a theological teacher to a Baptist preacher. And he says... Walk the aisle, ladies and gentlemen. Repent and be baptized. One more round of just as I am. Because the moment is here. It's not enough for you to sit in your seat and listen to this. But right now, every person, every one of you, man, woman, boy, and child, regardless of nation, regardless of class, regardless of income, you need to make a decision right now if you're going to acknowledge what I am saying is true. Repent and be baptized. There's only one choice for all of you. Be baptized, repentance. 
in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the promised gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone who the Lord calls himself, if you feel God working right now in your midst, it's time to come to him. With many other words, Peter bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves. This is a missionary. This is a, this is a preacher. This is an evangelist. He is pleading with everything that he has at whatever cost it's going to be to himself. He doesn't care. He knows that Jesus is truly the way and the truth and the life, and no one can come back to the Father except but through him. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And people started to get up and come. What does this teach us about the nature of true conversion? Let me tell you what true conversion is. There's two key ingredients. Anybody got a coin and you see the head side and the tail side, but it's just one coin. True conversion has two sides, repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. These are inseparable graces. They are worked in the depth of our soul by the regenerating Spirit of God. Peter stands up and he says, repent. Repent. <coughs> Reminds us as Jesus comes in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. What does he say at the beginning of his ministry? Now, John, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. So what do we do? We repent. Repent, friends, and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe. In the simplest of terms, conversion equals repentance and faith. Repentance, the precondition for the forgiveness of sins, the prerequisite for receiving salvation. It means that we regret our sin, we confess it, we feel the depth of sorrow in our hearts for our own personal rejection of Jesus. Our own turning away from the one who created us, the one who was always meant to be the center of our hearts. It's the work of God in the depth of our heart that changes. It literally changed. Like before, I didn't like chocolate ice cream. But now I like chocolate ice cream. What causes me to change my taste buds in a spiritual sense? What causes me to change? Suddenly, I see my, once I saw it as pleasurable and wonderful and what my life was about, and now I realize that my sin is the worst of me. It's awful. I'm seeing it in a whole different way, and now I distaste my sin, and I have a desire for Jesus. Repentance and faith, accepting Jesus as the Messiah, accepting him as the, as the Savior, as, as Lord we, we turn from our sin, but at the same time, we turn to Christ. We're not turning from 
like sin, to anything other than Christ. And we rely upon Christ alone as our all-sufficient Savior. Like you are drowning in an ocean and you, all you have is this piece of wood that is left from the sinking ship of sin and you've, you're clinging on to it, trying to figure out how to, 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 to stay alive, but you're drowning clearly. And suddenly a lifeboat comes to the rescue and calls out, I, I can save you. And he throws you one of those things that looks like a lifesaver. I think that's actually what they call it. He throws you a lifesaver. Is that what they call it, or life preserver? And you have to make a decision. Because on one, in one side, it looks like if you let go, you could, you're so fatigued and you're so overwhelmed that you might just drown. But if you don't let go, you're never going to have the opportunity to be saved. And at the same moment, you let go of what you've been holding on to, and you cling to what has been offered to you. You repent and you receive. Everybody understand that? It's what happens in the prodigal son story in Luke chapter 15 when suddenly he realizes he's eating slop from the pig's food trough. And he remembers his father and the goodness of his father back home. And he's awakened to his senses, what have I done? And in one moment, he's repentant because we see him preparing his speech. Oh, I'm just so sorry. I'm so unworthy to even be called your son. Just If I could just be your servant, I'm just so sorry. I've seen what I've done. But in the next moment, he has to make a decision to get up and walk home. And he gets up and he goes home. That's repentance in the trough. And that's faith as he journeys toward the Father again. You got it? Repentance and faith. And the New Testament is filled with pictures of sinners leaving their sin and receiving Christ and relying upon him. Think of Levi, the tax collector, leaving his trade to follow Christ. Or the woman at the well, leaving her sin to embrace Christ the wells of salvation that never run dry, or the Roman centurion, or Peter, or James, or John, or Saul, the persecutor of Christians. The list is long, but repentance and faith, each of them turns and trusts and follows Jesus. Now, that is conversion. Let me tell you what it's not. I believe it's here. Well, yeah, let me cover this. This is good. Before I tell you what it's not. I did a better job on my slides than I'm doing in the moment. I want you to see here that this repentance and faith, you've got to understand, is a gift of God. And the reason I'm saying it's so important is because I don't want us to think that we've got to conjure this up somehow. We've got to pray that God will change our hearts. Verse 37 and 39 We're almost done. It says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? They were cut to the heart. What what is this a description of? It's a description of God working in the depth of their heart to bring them to a point where they can repent and believe. In verse 39, Peter says, for this promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. There is a work that we do in repentance and faith, but we must be so aware that there is a work that God does in bringing us to life. Praise 
God for his mercy. Let me tell you what repentance is not. Excuse me, conversion is not. And this is where this message really lands with you. Because in our day, I believe that we need to be very careful to make sure that we as a church know what it looks like to be a church. Conversion is not reciting a creed. Conversion is not saying a prayer. Conversion is not a conversation. It is not becoming a Westerner. It is not reaching a certain age, and it is not attending a class. It's not even joining a church. Conversion is not passing through any other particular rite at any other particular age or stage. It is not a journey, although it does have a growth trajectory once it begins. Conversion is the gift of new spiritual life in Jesus. Jesus himself in John chapter 3, starting in verse 3, do you remember what he says to Nicodemus? He says, as Nicodemus comes and goes, we see all the stuff you're doing. Tell us what's going on here with you. How do I be a part of this? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In verse 4, Nicodemus goes, uh, excuse me, I don't really get this because you're talking about being born. How can you be born again when I'm this old? I'm supposed to go back to my mom. This is kind of weird, Jesus. And Jesus goes, no, you completely misunderstand. Go back to verse 4, please. Yeah, okay, you did right. Go to verse 5. <laughs> I'm sorry. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. In other words, you've got to understand that what's needed here, see, every religion in the world is going to tell you you've got to sign up for this, or you've got to do this, or you've got to be a better person, or be more moral, you've got to pray these five prayers, you've got to attend this class, and blah, 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 but what you need is a change of heart, and your change of heart can only be brought by God. We're not talking about a church that's made up of religious people doing religious things, trying to earn favor with God. We're talking about a church who's come to the point where we recognize we can't do anything. The only thing that is needed in our heart can only be done by the power of God in us. And the only way for his power to work in us is by receiving what he's done for us in his son, Jesus. We need a saving work in our hearts. And we can't accomplish that saving work. And we can't even bring ourselves to like really fully embrace it. We need God to work in such a way that he makes us new, like we're talking here, death to life, old to new, darkness to light, blind to seeing, deaf to hearing. We need new life. What you need, friend, is not a change in behavior. You need a change of heart. And the only one who could bring a change of heart is Jesus Christ. You must be born again. 
Conversion is turning our whole lives from self-justification to Christ-justification, from self-rule to God's rule, from idol worship to God's worship. It makes us new. And the overflow of this is obvious. I don't have time. It's okay. I'm just going to put the whole list up there. The overflow is obvious. When this happens, we will publicly identify with Jesus. Baptism is a result of repentance and faith. Forgiveness causes the Jews to want to be baptized. There's no way they're going to be baptized in the name of Jesus if you're a Jew. There's no way unless the work of repentance and faith has already happened in your heart. Look at the rest of scriptures and you can understand it. Baptism is not what gives salvation. Baptism evidence is salvation. It is the moment that you publicly identify with Jesus after he has done that work in your heart. But there comes a moment for all of us in the church. We are a group of people who have been regenerated by the Spirit of God, and we have publicly identified with Jesus as our Lord and Savior through baptism. That's what unites all of us. There's an assurance that's given. Repent and be baptized. What? For the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins. The core belief of Christians, temple sacrifice, immersion in water, beating yourself up, trying to obey the law, all of these things no longer effective. Forgiveness is our primary modus of operation in our relationship with God. Grace, 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 grace. He releases us from our sin, debt, and wrong. Assurance of forgiveness, mark of those who have been truly regenerated. And third, assurance of the indwelling presence of God. You will receive, Peter says, the forgiveness of sins and the promise of the Holy Spirit, he says. The presence of God's Spirit is the mark of all who repent and acknowledge that Jesus is the crucified, risen, and exalted Savior and Lord. And it's the central offer of the gospel that we proclaim. And last, we've said, a transformed life. Because look at the very end of the passage in Acts. He says, verse 41, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Transformed lives. As we close this morning and our worship team comes, I... I want to land this plane. We've covered a lot of ground this morning. But this is so, so important. In Acts chapter 2, we see what happens when God pours out His Spirit. And His Spirit is still poured out today. And that sermon was given, not just for the people of that day, but for the people of our day, right here, right now. so that you might believe as you witness the Spirit's working. As you come into a church, some of you might be in a church and you're going, what is happening? It feels like there's life here. Or even as you just hear the account, this is real history of what happened. And How does that happen? God is saying to you, you're living in the day that I have promised my Spirit is poured out. Jesus is the Savior. This is real. This is real. He's the Messiah. And he can save you.
Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord in this day will be saved. And He can satisfy and transform you. What others are witnessing with their hands and worship and praise, you can witness in this day as you open up yourself to the Spirit of God and you put your faith in Christ. This is what happens when God pours out His Spirit. And I'm wondering, do you believe it and have you experienced it? And I want to say to you today, we have to be a church that understands what really makes a church a church is people who have experienced true conversion by the Spirit of God. We are bound together as a living body of Christ. We are not a religious group. We are a group that has been made new by Jesus Christ. And what it looks like to belong to our church and continue in our church is to experience ongoing repentance and faith turning from self and sin and turning to God in Christ and receiving all that he has to give. It is not of ourselves, but a gift of God. He makes us new. And some of us, I wonder, have been living in a way that you think this church thing is all about you trying to do something for God. And really, it's all about what God wants and needs to do in you. And I'm asking today that you open up your heart and you say, Jesus, I need to be born again. How do I be born again? Oh, the Spirit of God. It's not anything of the flesh. It's of the Spirit. And ask God to make you new. And let's continue to focus on those amazing overflows of the gift of conversion, the gift of God's grace in our hearts. Let's continue to publicly identify with our Savior with boldness. Let's continue to be assured of his forgiveness and assured of his presence with us and continue to walk in ongoing transformation with him. What a wonderful day, Pentecost Sunday. What a wonderful Savior we have. Father, we thank you for what you've shared with us this morning, and we pray as we respond to you now that you would open our hearts, that you would call some of this room who are cut to the heart at this moment. They have been resisting you. They've been trying to find you, but they've been doing it all on their own. God, at this moment, that you would cause them to repent and believe. By your Spirit, I pray that you would make them new. Today, it is possible for us to believe that you, God, have done it all. Jesus, that you have finished the work in your life, death, and resurrection, and you have risen from the grave, and you have poured out your Spirit so that right now, at this moment, anyone can call upon the name of you, Jesus, and be saved. I pray today you would save right now as we acknowledge as we confess, as we believe and receive from you. Make us new. Father, I pray for others today that we would continue to hold to what is really the gospel. It is not a gospel of works, it is a gospel of faith, and that we would continue to live in light of your grace. Holy Spirit, fill us. Holy Spirit, cause us to identify with you. Holy Spirit, assure us of your ongoing salvation and forgiveness and care for us. Holy Spirit, would we rest in your presence and Holy Spirit, would we continue to experience your transforming work to make us more like you. Oh God, we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Church, you can sit or stand. We're gonna respond to God. We're just gonna sing out to God, cry out to God with your heart. There's prayer counselors coming. If you want anybody to pray with in specific ways, you need to talk to someone about giving your life to Christ or surrendering in an area which you need to surrender. Just come pray, pour out your heart to God. The Holy Spirit is here as he was in that day. He is here working in powerful ways for those who believe. Call out to him. Call out to him.